Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's so beautiful. It's like a a mini white Lincoln log, or a large Lincoln log, I guess, just floating in the middle of the pond. Completely stripped of bark, so it looks white. And then these fresh chew marks. That looks pretty fresh, doesn't it? Yeah, it looks really fresh. I'm standing in a pond in Magnuson Park in Seattle, holding a small log. The leftovers from somebody's lunch. That somebody is a creature that's almost comically cute. When I asked my friends what comes to mind when they think of a beaver, they all smiled. Buck-toothed mascots. Bucky the beaver. Leave it to beaver. Justin Beaver, whatever that means. I love the Far Side cartoon of a beaver. He's standing in front of his fridge with his hands on his hips, and the only thing in the fridge is wood and twigs. But there is far more to this little creature than just a pop culture caricature. The mighty beaver has altered landscapes, affected economies, and even changed the history of the world. And this is their story. From KUOW in Seattle, I'm Chris Morgan. Welcome to The Wild. The reason I've come to Magnuson Park is to see beavers in action. I meet up with Ben Ditbrenner. Ben? Chris. Hey, Chris. Nice to meet you. Good to meet you, too. Yeah. Caught me getting tied up in knots with my waders here. Beavers have come back to this city park over the last few years. Now, I've been around beavers in some wild, out-of-the-way places, but these urban, street-smart beavers are a different matter. I want to know more about them in this unlikely place. So, we've got to be prepared to get wet. Can't help but already feel inadequate you know like the beavers are out there in this freezing cold water without waders on (laughs) what's my problem ben is working on his phd at the university of washington and is also the executive director of beavers northwest he tells me city planners created what were supposed to be a few ephemeral wetlands at magnuson park to help support some wildlife the idea was that they would provide wet habitat in the spring and then dry up in the summer but the beavers had a different plan Um, And then about five years ago, beavers moved in from Lake Washington. They had been all over Lake Washington, and um, as soon as permanent water was really established here, they found it pretty quickly. The beavers moved in and started building dams, which is what beavers do. You see, beavers can't stand the sound of running water. It drives them crazy, and they have to stop it. It's a nagging, innate thing, because that sound of trickling water spells failure for their engineering efforts. It's something that they have to fix. People have done some really cool studies where they've even taken a radio with the sound of running water and put it in a field and beaver will come out and build a, a little circular dam over the top of, of the radio. <laughs> no. So they are really motivated That's... by that sound of running water. It's amazing. 
I want to do that today. <laughs> it's like beaver OCD. They can't help themselves. It reminds me of that beaver from Disney's Lady and the Tramp. Do you realize every second 70 centimeters of water is wasted over that spillway? Yeah, but gotta get this log moving, Shunny. Gotta get it moving. And I saw that obsession firsthand. Ben shows us a drain in the middle of a pond. The drain makes sure that the road that's nearby doesn't get flooded out. The park manager put a fence around that drain to keep the beavers off of it. Like that would actually stop them. There's a fence around a drain that drains water out of the pond that we're standing in right here. And the sound of that draining forced the beavers to come and fix it. And they couldn't get into the fence to fix it, so they've built all around this fence. And it's thick with this silty mud here. Reeds and grasses and whoa! <laughs> Almost went then. It is an amazing accomplishment. We wade through the water, picking our way through the vegetation and mud. I mean, you're looking across at this pond, and it and it very much feels like a naturally created pond. It doesn't feel like we're in a, a man-made park in Seattle, you know. And that's because the beavers have created this pond, and it's full of wildlife. It's full of there's ducks all over it. You know, you can imagine in the summer and the spring, it must be packed with insects and songbirds and all part of the, the ecosystem these guys are creating. We get to the main dam, the heart of the operation. We're standing on this, what looks like a big muddy mound, but there's a slide that goes across it from the pond to my right that's higher than the pond to the left. And the beaver has got this slide, which is basically a little beaver highway going from one pond to another to help him maintain this. And, and it's worn away the mud, so you can see all these different layers of, of sticks underneath it um, that are exposed. Then it looks like a dam. You can see that there's a construction under this muddy mound. It's, it's, it's amazing. So Chris, if you look at the way that the beavers have positioned the logs on the dam, you can see they kind of would do it differently than how we would do it. So we probably, if we were going to come out for the day and be beavers and build the dam, we would probably take these sticks and put them on the channel perpendicular to the flow. But beavers don't do that. They're approaching a little bit differently. They're taking the sticks and they're pushing them into the mud so that they're facing upstream. And even as the sticks get old and brittle, the force of the water and the mud just further pushes those sticks down into the, to the substrate and it makes the dam even potentially stronger. Picture yourself standing by a creek or a small river flowing through a forest or a glade of trees. You see a pretty view, but the beaver sees an opportunity. He sees a pond, and the beaver needs that pond. It's where he builds his lodge, where the whole beaver family lives, in fact. So he builds the lodge in the pond, where it's safe from predators. And the pond also allows him to swim, that they're better in the water than they are on land. So they can swim away from predators and also towards food the trees and shrubs that are now in and around the water, in the flooded area. It becomes a pantry right on his watery doorstep. When the beaver runs out of trees in his immediate pantry, then he starts to dig channels, literally like excavating them out of the ground, like fingers of water that extend from the pond so that he can swim to, to new forage further out from the main pond. He'll even float logs and sticks down those channels, and, and this is pretty cool some of them to eat and some of them to reinforce the dam and then some of them to pile on top of the lodge to shore it up so these three components the dam the lodge 
and, and the channels are the beaver's world. And it's really interesting to look for all three of those features when you're out there near a beaver pond. It, it sort of brings it all together and makes total sense. The primary motivations of the beavers is to be safe and to have sufficient food. So they're building those dams and, and increasing the pond area to, to achieve both of those goals. The beavers pretty much took over this part of the park and, and they've changed the hydrology of this entire site. The ephemeral ponds became permanent. And park planners have been really open-minded about the changes that they've been seeing and instead of trying to trap the beavers out and actively fight them, they've been working with the beavers and adapting to what the beavers have been doing. So it's, it's a really cool kind of story of how people and beavers are working kind of together to try to find um, some middle ground that works for nature and for the needs of the park and, and everyone else. It's like the beavers are on the planning committee, right? They're part of the process, <laughs> that's awesome. I th yeah, I think that they put themselves in the planning committee and uh, n people realize there's no way they get those beavers off the planning committee now. If you can't beat them, join them kind of thing? Yeah, exactly. It is a little bit that way, hey, sounds like. Yeah. But beavers are not always welcomed by everyone. Because as much as they create habitat, they can disrupt it too, for humans. They can flood agricultural land by damming, which isn't good. Or on the other extreme, they can deprive land of water by blocking the flow of that water. It's complicated, but there are still a lot of people who are pretty passionate about beavers, like Ben Goldfarb. There's so much to say about sniffing beaver butts, it's really kind of remarkable. <laughs> ben is an environmental reporter and author of the book Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter. And before you jump to conclusions about Ben's enthusiasm over beaver butts, a little context here. It's impossible to look at a beaver and know what sex it is. They have internal genitalia. Makes sense, swimming between all those snags. So researchers determine the sex of a beaver not by sight, but by smell. What you can do is, is basically find the, the anal gland, uh, one of the scent organs, and you know, squirt out a, a bit of scent secretion and sniff it. And if it smells like motor oil, uh, it's a male. And if it smells like old cheese, uh, it's a female. So that's, that's, how you, that's how you sex a beaver. Hopefully you never have the opportunity, but if you do, now you, now you know. It is good to know these things. I don't know how I would have coped without it. You know, Thanks for that background. <laughs> I love that. That's, that's news, news you can use. So their anal gland is called the castor sac, and the liquidy substance it secretes is called castorium. It's even featured in their scientific name, castor canadensis. It's, it's this, this very strong-smelling kind of musky, uh, but with hints of vanilla. It's a very unusual aroma. Mm. Um, and for a long time, castorium was actually used as a, as a flavor additive uh, in things like, like fruit sodas and vanilla ice cream. Uh, it's still used to this day in, in some perfumes. Uh, it's a, it's a, pretty, a pretty unique scent. I'm um, never eating vanilla ice cream again in my life. But Ben's real fascination with beavers comes from their incredible ecological contributions. We think about them as being kind of these these fun little rodents uh, and don't always give them credit for being these incredibly dramatic ecosystem engineers and architects. But these unlikely ecosystem engineers are benefiting way more than just themselves with all this busy behavior. Other species benefit too. Even though they're expanding their own habitat, they're also inadvertently creating habitat for all of these other creatures as well, right? We know that, you know, on this planet, water is life. And there are so many animals from, 
you know, ducks to frogs to fish to moose uh, that are dependent on the kinds of wet habitats that beavers are creating. So they're, they're building their own shelter, but in the process, they're creating shelter for this vast ecosystem as well. Goldfarb goes into this in his book. He argues that this kind of habitat engineering is what makes beavers a keystone species. To understand the importance of a keystone species, picture a a stone arch. The keystone is the block at the top of the arch that holds the entire arch together. And if you take out that block, the whole arch comes crashing to the ground. And a keystone species plays a similar role in an ecosystem. And beavers are playing that same role as well. They're, They're also a species without which ecosystems collapse because, again, they're, they're building all of this wet habitat for literally thousands of different species uh, that are, are depending on them for, you know, for, for ponds and wetlands and wet meadows. Um, so that's, that's what a keystone species is, a species that disproportionately holds up an ecosystem. And the, to me, there's no question that beavers are doing that. Beavers create a, a nourishing wetland system that help all kinds of species, from songbirds to mink to otters. They even help orcas. Their ponds are really good habitat for young salmon, salmon that eventually find their way down into the sea, and some of them into the mouths of orcas. Ben Goldfarb says you could consider beavers unlikely heroes. Aside from humans, they're really, in many ways, you know, our, our continent's most influential animal. And, you know, again, they're these kind of chunky balls of, of fat and fur, but they're doing a lot of work. And, and this had been happening for thousands of years, like a natural system that worked very well with the beaver at the heart of it. Native Americans knew this long ago. They called the beaver the sacred center of the earth because of their role in making habitat for other animals and plants. But then the Europeans arrived, and they wanted beavers in a bad way. I'll tell you why after the break. Hey, my name's Claire McGrain, and I'm a producer for Seattle Now, KUOW's local news podcast. There is a lot happening in our region, and it's a lot of work to keep track of it all. We'll get you caught up on the latest news and take a deep dive into something happening around the city, all in under 15 minutes. Get a morning walk-in or grab a cup of coffee and start your day with us. Learn something new and connect with our city by searching for Seattle Now wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give, and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks! Hats. Beaver hats were the hot fashion item in the 16th to 18th century in Europe. High society, monocles, a kind of a status symbol. Kind of take the the under fur of the beaver and felt it up and it turns into this really durable, pliable, waterproof material that was sort of the finest hat-making stuff. Beavers had almost been hunted to extinction in Europe to feed the hat trade, and America had no shortage of them. Beaver pelts became an economic driver for early settlers here. Pilgrims had to pay back debt to those who had funded their journey to America, and they did it by trapping beavers and selling their pelts. 
helped made the Massachusetts Bay Colony financially solvent. Then there was the Beavers' role in politics. Yes, politics. The Revolutionary War, one of the things that the, the British did to anger the American colonists was deny them access to beaver trapping grounds west of the Appalachians. You know, so beavers played a, a role in the American Revolution. The Louisiana Purchase, westward expansion. The market for beaver fur was a factor in all these decisions. These creatures were helping to shape history, all while being slowly annihilated. These animals are just so integral to uh, our, our own story as a nation. Amazingly so, yes. And incredible to think that so much of it began with a, a, a hat fad in many ways. Hey, that's, uh, <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's, it's an insane thought that we could have such an impact on a species because of a fashion item. Yeah, I know. It's, it's true. But, you know, but then you think, I mean, that's kind of the story of our relationship with wildlife in so many ways. You know, we, mm-hmm. we wiped out bison in part because, you know, we wanted to use their furs as robes. And, and you know, we eliminated, you know, th- I mean, untold billions of, of, uh, of songbirds because, you know, we used their plumage in hats. You know, it's, it's amazing the extent to which fashion has basically driven our relationship with the environment for centuries. The greed and ignorance of humans. Before Europeans arrived in North America in the 1600s, best estimates put the beaver population at 400 million. That's a lot of hats. That's more than the number of people in the USA and Canada today. But by 1900 or so, after a massive continent-wide trapping effort, there were only 100,000 left. And in Europe, they were down to around 1,200 beavers in the wild. The loss of these animals has literally changed the geography of North America. My own view of what a stream should look like was in many ways inaccurate because I, I too, had omitted beavers from the, this historic picture. You know, you read, you read old explorers and trappers' accounts of crossing North America before all the beavers were eliminated. And, you know, places that today we associate with desert, like much of New Mexico and, and eastern Wyoming, uh, you know, there explorers encountered marshes and wetlands and ponds, and, and a lot of that was beaver influence. This is an animal that can make a desert into a wetland. It's incredible to think that North America's landscape used to actually look and feel different because of beavers. So much so that even today, we don't understand what a river actually is supposed to look like. But over the last century, beaver numbers have started to spring back. People started to understand that beavers improved biodiversity and and the health of habitats and probably shouldn't be blindly exterminated everywhere. And as often happens when an animal population comes back, There are growing pains with the surrounding human community. These types of conflicts played out in a very unique way in Idaho in 1948. This man is carrying beaver live traps. Beaver populations were increasing and causing problems with local irrigation systems and orchards. He is on his way to a beaver pond where he will remove the busy engineers who have become too numerous. The state's Department of Fish and Wildlife wanted to eliminate these human-beaver conflicts. So basically decided to live trap a bunch of a bunch of beavers and relocate them uh, to the to the wilderness, which was, you know, a really a really nice idea. Live beaver for new waters. The initial challenge was that they, they tried to move the beavers on horseback. But the beavers spooked the horses and made them hard to manage. You know, you can't really blame the horses for not uh, being a big fan of having, you know, beavers strapped to their back. So transporting the beavers on horseback wasn't going to work. So how are these biologists going to translocate these beavers into the backwoods of Idaho? 
Well, this was just after the end of World War II, and somebody gets an idea. There are all of these surplus parachutes on hand. Uh, they've got some airplanes, so, you know, why not try uh, tossing beavers out of airplanes? Uh, oh, so, you so can't this... make this stuff up. That's just insane. <laughs> if it's, it's not horses, <laughs> plan B, parachutes, anybody? Parachutes are attached to cargo lines, nearly ready for that flight back into the mountains. This one biologist, this guy named Elmo Heater, uh, designed this this special crate that you could strap to a parachute and then the crate would fall open upon impact. And the boxes are stacked in rows along the waist of the plane. Ten boxes to a load, 20 beaver ready for the flight to mountain meadows. So that year, in 1948, they, they dropped 76 beavers out of airplanes uh, wow. in these specially designed crates attached to parachutes. The plane makes a careful approach, ready for the drop. Now, into the air, and down they swing, down to the ground near a stream or a lake. <laughs> Unfortunately, one little beaver somehow got out of the crate midair and fell to his death. But 75 of the 76 beavers survived to go on to start a family in the wilds of Idaho, away from any conflict with humans. The box opens, and a most unusual and novel trip ends for Mr. Beaver. The really remarkable thing was that when they when they flew over those same areas the next year, they found that beavers had actually built dams and, and lodges in all of the places they'd been dropped off. So the beavers not only survived the initial landing, they actually uh, built, built dams and flourished. Today, there are about 15 million beavers in North America. So from that perspective, it's, it's certainly a, a wonderful story of, of recovery and conservation. Mm-hmm. But then you consider the fact that Historically, there were likely several hundred million, uh, and you know you realize that we still have an awfully long way to go when it comes to returning this species to many of the places that it was eliminated from. But it is an amazing start, and and even in Europe, where the whole problem began, you know, with with their hat fetish. Well, even there, there are now half a million beavers, thanks to some really effective conservation efforts. Today, beavers are being looked at as a way to help us deal with one of the greatest challenges we face on the planet, climate change. That's because it's all about water. You know, as, as we lose that snowpack, as, as precipitation falls as rain rather than snow, it becomes really important that we figure out new strategies to capture some of that water, to hold water up in the, up in the mountains, up in the high country. And, you know, hey, here's this, this nifty little rodent capable of creating thousands and thousands of reservoirs uh, up in the mountains to keep that water on the landscape and keep our, our streams and rivers hydrated into the, the summer and fall as it gets hot. So I think that idea that beavers could be a water storage solution and help us adapt to climate change is a really big reason why there's so much interest in these animals right now. Ben Goldfarb says that these reservoirs also create fire breaks on the landscape that, that help slow wildfires. And we know how bad those have been in recent years. You, know, you can actually, in many cases, achieve, achieve a lot more and certainly do it much more cost-effectively by letting the rodent do the work, as, uh, as, as many beaver scientists say. Uh, you know, basically getting out of the way, relocating or, or you know, restoring these, these animals somehow, and essentially letting them build their dams, create ponds and wetlands, store water, make amazing wildlife habitat, improve water quality. You know, they do all of these wonderful things if we basically stay out of their way, don't kill them, and, uh, you know, and, and take steps to help them recover. So to me, that's, that's the lesson is, is more than anything else, you know, we, we humans are, are so infatuated with our own godlike powers, uh, but here's a case where we can actually make more progress by turning restoration over to another species. 
Back at Magnuson Park, standing knee-deep in the pond with the other Ben, Ben Ditbrenner, I have a new respect for the beaver. The landscape of this urban park that they have helped build is teeming with wildlife. In these wetland systems we see herons and we see uh, all types of, of shorebirds and then in the surrounding areas we see a huge diversity of songbirds and when we look at wildlife cameras footage at night we see that the area is teeming with uh, mammals like mink and otter and all types of uh, just a huge diversity of, of mammals. Ben Ditbrenner says beavers are a great investment for the future, our allies in so many ways. And they're free. Uh, if we had to come in here and try to replicate what beavers were doing, it would be $100,000 easily. But well, beavers come into the system and they do this for free. And when we have big storm events and the dams blow out, if we were in charge, probably would never get around to fixing those dams. But the beavers come back out the next day and start rebuilding. They start rebuilding, rebuilding nature, putting back the pieces. It's an amazing thought. We may never have 400 million beavers back in North America, and frankly, there isn't room for that many of them these days. But I do like the idea of just getting out of their way and having some parts of the old place just the way they are supposed to be. Beavers on the planning committee of planet Earth. Just. Hold the vanilla ice cream, please. We have some amazing photos and video from all of our episodes on Instagram. So check us out at The Wild Pod. We have a whole crew helping to put these amazing images up. A big thanks to our social media team, Juan Pablo Chiquiza, Bree Ripley, and Mariah Powell. On the next episode of The Wild, we'll meet a man who spent years in a hole in the ground to observe and film Siberian tigers. He became an inspiration to me. It's an amazing story of dedication and resilience that brought the world some of the first footage of Siberian tigers in the wild. The wild is inspired not just by nature, but by people who work in it, love it, protect it. There's a ton of information on the website if you want to find out more. The Wild is a production of KUOW in Seattle in partnership with my work at Chris Morgan Wildlife. Our producer is Matt Martin. Jim Gates is our editor. Brandon Sweeney is our managing producer. Our fact checker is April Craig. We had engineering help from Dave Brown. Our theme music is by Michael Parker. We had additional music from Les Hayden and Lee Rosevear. I'm your host, Chris Morgan. Thanks for listening. At SoundSide, we bring you news and conversation rooted in the Pacific Northwest. Hi, I'm Libby Denkman. I think of my job hosting SoundSide as, number one, asking tough questions of powerful people, the questions you, KUOW listeners, want answered. And two, bringing you a daily slice of the fascinating, confounding, and often goofy side of life in Washington State. Join me for SoundSide at noon and 8 p.m. on KUOW or anytime on the SoundSide podcast.